Heavenly Father, um, what a glorious day it is today. Beautiful outside um, and just an awesome opportunity for us to enjoy friends, family, fellowship. I pray that, that we would use that opportunity today. Um, and uh, what we need most right now, Father God, though, is, is for you to come and meet with us. We need your spirit to come into this room to, to take these realities that we're going to be looking at as we start a new series today and infiltrate our hearts, remove barriers, remove distractions, remove hindrances, infiltrate my heart and my friends' hearts today with your love and your grace and your mercy. We need that today. It is the greatest need of our soul every day, especially today as we worship you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them and turn with me to Luke 10, verse 25. Today we are going to begin a new series, and uh, this series is going to be in a topic you probably are familiar with, and I'll tell you what it is in a second. God willing, for the next two months, we'll be there. Um, and this series is a series that I felt burdened with for a long time now. Um, and uh, one of the main reasons why is because I personally feel the need to engage my soul with this. This is something that, and it's a little selfish, I, I admit, but this is something that I need to learn. I need to embrace. Um, but my prayer is really that God would do something miraculous over the next two months in my heart, in your heart. And um, the series is called Love Thy Neighbor. And the goal will be to explore the, the radical, otherworldly nature of Christian love. To be a follower of Christ Jesus and to love. What does that mean? Why do we have that? Why is it so critical? Is it just a, a human sort of structure that we're kind of building into uh, a religious institution? Or is there a reality here that we need to see? And my hope is that God would do something profound over the next two months in our hearts and whatever he does in our hearts would spill over into the lives of the people that are around us, the relationships we have, our communities. Um, and so to that end, we will be camped out in this text um, for the most part over the next two months. And this is a story you all know from the New Testament. It's called the Good Samaritan Parable, a story that Jesus tells. And this parable is so rich and so profound. I'll be honest with you, like as I, the more I read this text, the more I'm convinced that I could preach on this a year and still have parts that are unexplored, areas that are left not tapped into. It is an extraordinary passage. And so without further ado, let's, let's dive right in. Luke 10, verse 25. And it begins like, like this. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test. It's Jesus that he's putting to the test. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, 
a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, the wounded man, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an end and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Then Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, the point of this parable is that we are called to love every single human being. That's the point of this parable. The question is not, who do we have to love to follow this rule? The question is, how can I love every human being I meet today? And so over the next two months, this is really going to be the, the focus, and we're going to draw out what that means in different shades, different flavors, how this actually plays out in the scripture. But today what I want to do is I want to focus on verse 25 through verse 28, which isn't the parable, but it is the incident that gives rise to the parable. And it is signaled by verse 25. This lawyer stands up. He uh, wants to put Jesus to the test. He wants to test Jesus. Um, Now, this test for Jesus lasts about three seconds before Jesus turns the table and tests him which is awesome that Jesus does this. The lawyer asks a simple question. He says, how can I inherit eternal life? It's a simple question, but it is, I mean, inarguably the most important question in the world. Even though he's asking in pretense, he's asking with wicked intentions, this is the most critical question a human being could ever ask. There isn't another question you can conceive of that is more important than how do I live forever? How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds not with an answer, but with a question. What is written in the law? How do you read this? How do you read the, the Bible? In other words, I know you were testing me. That's going to change. I'm testing you right now. What does your Bible say about it? And the lawyer would know what the Bible says about it because lawyer in this capacity isn't someone who's a legal representative. He's a person who studied the law. He's saturated with the law. And so this man responds with two commands from the Old Testament, verse 21 or verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, the first commandment is from Deuteronomy 6, and the second one is from Leviticus 19. And and these two commandments form the most important part of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus 
And Matthew 22 says something amazing about these two commands. Listen to this. Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. And one of them, a lawyer, apparently there's a lot of these guys rolling around Jerusalem, asking the same questions, (laughs) asked him a question to test him again. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says something amazing. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says the law and the prophets, which is effectively their Old Testament at the time, it's their entire Bible at the time, the law and the prophets, everything hangs on these. If you don't understand these two realities, you will not get, it will be a closed book to you. Everything hangs on these two commandments. To love God with every part of your being, every part of your being, and to love your neighbor just like you love yourself. And he says everything hangs on these two realities. So when the lawyer gives Jesus this answer, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. He's not talking about trivial things. He's talking about a massive reality. And Jesus hears this answer and he affirms it completely. Look at his words in verse 28. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now Jesus agrees with the lawyer. That's what's going on here. The path to eternal life is through these two commandments. Do those commandments and you will live. He doesn't disagree. He's not trying to correct the language. He has an opportunity to say anything he wants in this moment, and he says this. He agrees. But when I hear Jesus' response, I have two two elements of resistance. I see two problems with it. I I, I see two things rise up in me that say, "I, I don't understand. How can this be this way? They crop up in me, and I'm wondering if you see these two things. The first is this. In other places in the Bible, it says that in order to be saved... In order to inherit eternal life, we must simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, Acts 16, 30 through 31. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Or Paul in Romans 10, 9, and you all know this text, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Praise be to God. So what in the world is Jesus answering the question like this? Why answer it like this? And the second problem for me is even bigger than the first. That's the first problem that I have when I read a text like this. I'm like, I don't understand. Second one is even bigger than the first one, and it's this. How in the world can Jesus command someone to love? This isn't a command not to steal or murder or commit adultery. This is to love. Think about that for a second. True, authentic love isn't willed into existence. It is an affection. It is an emotion. We can't do that unless it is felt on the inside here. It isn't obedience to the command to show love to someone if you don't feel it. The command is to love. To love, to feel that. And if it's not 
on the inside. It's not real. And Jesus in this passage is affirming a command, two commands, to love God and to love people in radical ways. He's asking for the impossible. If I don't love someone, I can't make myself love them. I could show them love. I could pretend that I love them. I could fake it. But do I feel it? Feelings aren't manufactured by willpower. And that's a problem. And so these two big problems for me when I read a text like this crop up. And I want to linger here for a moment and just, we need to recognize Jesus could have answered any way he wanted to. He did not need to answer this way. He had a reason for answering this way. And so let's press in. Thankfully, Scripture helps. But Jesus isn't, he doesn't always answer the way that he did in, in Luke 10. In Mark 1.14, listen to this passage. Listen to what Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So in Jesus' ministry, at the beginning of it, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. This is, this is his ministry. This is what he says. This is no different than Peter in Acts, which we saw, and, and Paul in Romans. If you want eternal life in the kingdom of God, repent and believe. But here's the rub. Here's the area where we, we often rush ahead to our assumptions and don't drill down into what the text is asking. We fail to ask, what do you mean when you say repent and believe? What do you mean? When you say repent and believe, when you want me to believe in you, what are you asking? Is it just like, you want me to believe some facts about you? Do you want me to believe some facts about the cross? Or some theological facts? Maybe if I just believe and assent to these theological facts, that's what you mean. This is a huge question. This is a massive question. And I think it begs us pressing deeper. So John 1 helps us here. Look at John 1, verse 11. John opens his, his gospel with these texts. He, Jesus, came to his own. He came to the, the people of Israel. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John tells us right here that all who received Jesus believed in his name. Jesus gave those people, the people who received him, the people who believed in him, the right to become children of God. So receiving Christ Jesus is believing in Christ Jesus, according to John 1. To receive Christ in the way that John describes here is to believe in the name of Christ Jesus, to believe in him. And that's what Jesus means when he says repent and believe in the gospel. This is the Bible's definition of faith. It is a receiving of Christ. Now, if believing and receiving is the same, that doesn't necessarily solve our problem. Because... I can personally think of thousands of ways I could receive something different ways. For example, I could receive a fresh coffee from a barista after I pay them money. 
Or I could receive an elbow to the chest in the middle of a football game. Or I could receive a bill in the mail. I don't want to receive bills in the mail, but I'm going to have to receive them. So I could receive a bill in the mail, or I could receive a card from my daughter. There are different ways we can receive. So what do you, John, when you say receive Christ, what do you mean receive? What do you mean when you say that? Praise be to God, the Bible does not leave us in suspense. So throughout all of the New Testament, there are pictures of how we are to receive Jesus Christ. I'm going to stay in Luke and look at three very briefly. We'll start with Luke 9. Listen to this. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, anyone, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, for the sake of Christ, will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Or here's Jesus in Luke 14. Listen to what Jesus says here. If anyone comes to me, this is astonishing that he says this, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he gives two analogies. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, another example, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Cannot be a Christian. That's what a disciple is. Now, I have one more example, but before I press further, do you see a pattern emerging about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? To receive Christ in faith is a big deal. It is central. It isn't simply believing a fact. It isn't simply signing a card so I can get out of jail free, get out of hell free, To receive Christ, according to this text, is to renounce everything else. We must receive Jesus as he really is. Not a a fiction in our mind, as he really is. And Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure in the universe. There's nothing more valuable than Jesus. He is so glorious. I mean, by him even saying this, if he's true and right about this, he is so glorious that to forsake everything else in the world... And receive him is to lose nothing. It is to lose nothing. 
That's the kind of receiving that John is talking about when he speaks about believing, who received him, believed in his name. Christ isn't something you can have on the side. He is everything or he is nothing. And in this last example, what Luke's going to do is he's going to help us understand Jesus' statements in just prior to the, the Good Samaritan parable in our main text, and it's going to connect it to eternal life. What does eternal life mean when Jesus says these things? So listen closely to this exchange. <laughs> Luke 18, verses 18 through 27. And a ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the ruler said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus heard this and he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come Follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So this ruler comes to Jesus, and he's got a question about eternal life. This is a good question to ask. If I saw Jesus, and I didn't know the answer from the Bible, I would actually ask this question. How do I do this? He calls Jesus a good teacher, and Jesus pushes back a little bit and says, why do you call me a good teacher? This is an interesting way that Jesus handles this. Because he says he and the Father is one in other texts. He says here, no one is good except for God alone. And yet he doesn't explicitly correct him. He doesn't say, I'm not good, because Jesus knows he's God. Why does he push back here? We're going to see. He tests this man, the ruler knows the commandments. So when Jesus rattles off this list of commandments about loving people, these commands are about loving people. You obey these commands and you are showing love to your neighbor. The man says, I'm good, Jesus. I've kept all of those since my youth. I've kept all of them. And Jesus assesses this man's response and then returns with one line. You lack one thing. Now, what in the world could that be? He's acing the Ten Commandments. But he does lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. Follow me. Renounce all of that and follow me. This man called Jesus good and only God is good. How good does this ruler actually believe Jesus is? That's the question. How good is Jesus? Is he worth giving up everything for? 
<laughs> Jed answered, yes. We're going to find out what this man says. Well, the answer for this man is tragically no. He walks away. To which Jesus responds, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And no matter what YouTube says about there being a gate in Jerusalem that's called the needle, that you need to take stuff off of a camel to enter, that's not the point of this scene. The point of this scene is that it is impossible for a camel to enter the eye of a needle. It is physically impossible. Which is why when the disciples and these people who are around him see this say, who then, if he can't be saved, he's been keeping all the rules If he can't be saved, who can be saved, Jesus? If it was possible at all, they would not ask that question. If it was possible at all for someone to do what Jesus is saying, they wouldn't ask that question. And Jesus responds by stating what is critical for us to see. He starts out with what is impossible with man. And I just want to Think about that for a second. Jesus is saying it is impossible to follow him. That's what he's saying. He answers, who then can be saved with no one? No one can be saved. And we need to sit on that a moment because I think we just run by that sentence. With man, it is impossible to be saved. In other words, man cannot make this happen. He cannot merit salvation. He cannot earn salvation. It is impossible. So whatever we we think about when we look back to Luke 10 and see that encounter before the Good Samaritan parable, we need to recognize that Jesus's stance is that man cannot do it. That's why the ruler of That's why the ruler went to Jesus. He was trying to earn it. He was trying to find a way to get in. And Jesus showed him the bar is way too high. The bar is way too high. With man, it's impossible, but praise be to God, he doesn't finish his sentence there. What is impossible for man is possible with God because all things are possible with God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that Something must happen to the man, in the man, through the man, in in order for him to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Something needs to happen in him to make this possible by God. So look again back at John 1.11. We were looking at this text earlier when we looked at receive. Listen to what Jesus says here, or what John says. He came to his own, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name receiving, believing Jesus Christ, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. To all who received Jesus, in the way that we've illustrated from the book of Luke, To all who believed in his name, Jesus gives the right to become children of God. They become children of God. Now, here's the critical part. The reason why they can receive and believe, the reason why is because they were born. 
They, they were born not of blood. He's not talking about natural birth. He's not talking about a decision someone made, the will of the flesh or the will of the man. It wasn't a decision. They were born of God. Children of God were born of God. They must be born of God. So to receive Christ, to believe in Christ, requires an act of God on a human soul. That's what this text is saying. In order for faith to happen in our hearts, it requires an act of the living God to cause that to happen. It is a supernatural event to be born of God. It is a miracle that we believe. You may not think that it is or feel that it is in your current context, but it is a miracle. So back in Luke 10, 27, Jesus says to the lawyer, you have answered correctly. You have answered correctly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You are right. You've answered correctly. Do this. Love God with your entire being. And you will live forever. You will live eternally. You will live. And what this means is that if we don't love, what this means is that we don't love to earn eternal life, but rather the event, the act of God in our hearts to create us being his children is the same act that produces the love that Jesus is talking about here. The very ability of the love. Now, what in, this, what in the world does this have to do with loving your neighbor? We're talking a lot about the vertical relationship between us and God, us and Jesus, receiving Jesus and believing Jesus. But what we're focusing on today and for the next two months is how does this event in our lives, in our souls, affect our ability to love our neighbor? Well, 1 John 4 tells us, listen to this. John, the same author of the gospel we've been running around in, with uh, well, John 1, 11 through 13, and says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So John tells us here to love one another. Love one another. For, he gives us a reason, because, for, because, love is from God. That's who it comes from. The reality of love comes from God. And not just a vague, generic love. The radical, self-sacrificing, loving your neighbor kind of love is what comes from God. This is the same love that Jesus was talking to the, to the lawyer about and saying, do this and you will live. That love is from God. It comes through being born of God, being a child of God and knowing him is what John says here. In fact, Romans 5 gets even more detailed and says that when we were born of God, God poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit so that when we love, we love with the very love that God loved us, which is profound. 
And it is why John says here, if you don't love people, how could it be possible that you know God who himself is love? So God's children must love this way. And as we look at the parable in the coming weeks, we see precisely this. When you look at the Good Samaritan and what he does in this parable, it's not a show. He's not pretending. He's not just, I'm trying to love you. I, I really got something to do later on today. It's compassion that rises up in his heart. He's not interested in just showing love. He is going to show love, but he feels a deep compassion. It is a real, sincere power in his heart to love this person, to save this person from death. But if you're like me, you see a tension between that reality and, and the fact that John is even telling us we should love here. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who are children of God, people who have the love of God in them. And what that should tell us is that expressing the love that we've been given by God is not an automatic, passive, let's just let it happen experience. And both the command here in 1 John and the Good Samaritan parable and countless Stories, parables, and commands across the New Testament are designed to ignite the fire of God's love in the heart of his children. To do what is impossible. To love someone genuinely, sincerely love someone just like you would love yourself. Just like you would love yourself. Think about this. Think about yourself here. The attention, the thought, and the care that you give yourself every day. Now imagine giving that same exact kind of attention, that same kind of thought, that same kind of care to others. You should respond to me and say, that's impossible, Jeremy. That is impossible. And Jesus would say, yeah, you're right. Outside of an act of God, it is possible, but all things are possible with God. John is telling us people who are already children of God, people who have already been born of God, become what you already are. Become what you already are. You are a child of God. So when you hear these commands to love and to, you feel in your heart rising up a desire to say, I want that. I want to love somebody like that. I want to love somebody like Christ loved me. And what that is, is the love of God that he's put in you, desiring to break out and to do what you were made to do. Care for the needs of other people. And the only reason any of that is possible, and the only reason even the new birth, being born of God is possible, this supernatural event is because of what happens immediately after this passage in verse 9. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. John says, In this is love. 
The love of God was made manifest. God's love was put on display. It was shown powerfully to us. How was it shown? When God sent his only son, Christ Jesus, into the world to die on a cross for us. That is love. That is profound love. God gave up his infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious, infinitely splendid son, Jesus, so that we could receive him in faith. Without the cross, that doesn't happen. The ruler said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? What must I do to live? Jesus says, receive me for who I really am. Receive me for everything that I am. Because underneath all of your receiving, underneath all of your believing, is what I'm about to do on the cross for you. Is what I'm about to purchase for you on the cross. That's why Jesus died, so that we might live eternally. That we might live forever. And the experience of eternal life isn't simply living forever. Despite our sin, despite our desire not to love people, our predisposition to be selfish, despite the wrath that's due us, the justice that we deserve for for having that disposition to begin with, eternal life is receiving Christ Jesus and experiencing him as the treasure. A treasure so glorious, so powerful, so beautiful that it creates in us a desire to invite people into that love. I don't want you to miss what I'm experiencing. I don't want you to miss the joy I have in the greatest treasure in the universe. God gave up the treasure on the cross so that we could receive it. That event doesn't happen, we get no treasure. We get no treasure. Romans 8 says that God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for all of us. For all of us. He gave up his son. And it is a sad fact that we could read a verse like this. I can read this verse, and it doesn't bring me to tears. It should bring me to tears if I only knew how glorious Christ was and what it costs God to send him. I would weep. This was a massive sacrifice because God's love, when it was granted to us through this event, is a radical, otherworldly kind of love that isn't found anywhere else. Anywhere else. Think about God's love. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't. Except for maybe justice. He doesn't owe us anything. He is not constrained. We are constrained to love people horizontally because of the relationships we have and the fact that we live in a shared community. God doesn't depend on us. He didn't create us because he needs us. Nothing can, this is, this is what's glorious about the cross. The greatest act of love isn't just amazing because of the cost to him, which is incredible. It is amazing because there was nothing constraining God to do it. There was nothing impending upon him to say, I'm going to give up the greatest value in the universe, pin it to a tree, so that the world has no confusion about what I feel about this situation. I love them. I love them. 
the love that we get through the cross from new birth is a love that God alone possesses. And that is why we can love our neighbor as ourself. The world has loves in it. No question about it. Affections, emotions. I'm attracted to this person. I enjoy this person. I, I, I want to spend more time with this person. But a lot of the, all of those are driven by multiple different things. Selfishness for one. Ulterior motives. Guilt. I got to spend time with them. I don't really want to, but I got to. Wanting a desiring reciprocation, but that's not the way God's love is. God's love does not work that way. God's love drives us to sacrifice, not out of guilt, not out of selfishness, but because we have a treasure that is infinitely valuable. Infinitely valuable. We lose nothing in sacrificing for other people like the Good Samaritan sacrificed because we have the, the greatest treasure in the universe. So as we prepare to take communion and worship here in the next few minutes, there are a few ways that I think you can hear what we've talked about today and want to respond. And I want to call out two very clearly. One way may be, Jeremy, I've never heard anybody describe faith that way. I've never heard anybody describe faith as receiving Jesus Christ as my highest treasure. And I want that. I want that kind of faith. To see Jesus not just as a means to an end, ooh, I get to get out of hell, that's great, but to see Jesus as the means and the end. We get Jesus infinitely worthy. And so as we worship, I would, if, if you're that person, I would simply ask you to plead with God to open the eyes of your heart to see Jesus that way and to receive him. Embrace him as your treasure until everything else fades away. The second category, if you're like me, is that you may know that you're a child of God. I love Jesus. I do love him. Not perfectly. Not perfectly. I feel all sorts of pulls on my soul, but I know that the love of God is in me. I know it's really there. Even if I struggle in a thousand different ways to express that love, I know it's there. But what I want is I want the treasure of Jesus Christ to have Jesus. I want that treasure to fuel this kind of love every day in my life. self sacrificial love, compassion. As soon as I see a need, not worried about myself, not worried about what it's going to cost me, I want to help that person. Some of you may feel that struggle, that tension. I know I'm saved. I know I have eternal life, but I just don't love the way I ought to. And that tension, that struggle, Jesus knows you feel it. And the reason the Good Samaritan parable and the reason 1 John 4 is in the Bible and thousands of other passages is because in those texts, God is in his children drawing out of his children the very love that he gave you when you first believed. He is drawing that love out of you and you feel it. 
When you read the Good Samaritan parable, you say, I want that. I want to love like that man. I want to feel that way about other people. I don't want to be driven by guilt or, 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 or want to be approved by people or liked by people. I just want to love like God loved me, unconstrained, free, expecting nothing in return, which is the exact kind of love that Jesus displayed on the cross. It is the, the kind of love that the children of God must love with. The world is desperate to see this love. They don't know what this love looks like. They do not know it. They don't experience and they need to see it in us. So if you're in that second category, pray with me, pray with me. I'm praying this prayer for myself. Pray with me that as we consider the cross in worship and in communion and even just day to day, the sacrifice that God made for us through Jesus Christ, as we consider the cross and survey people after people after people that are in our lives, that God has brought us near, that we see, just like the Samaritan saw, that by God's grace, he would so weave his love into the DNA of our soul that the very same love that was poured on the cross would be poured out of our lives every single day every single day so that we could have life with him forever. Christians are radical, strange creatures. They are strange creatures to be controlled by the love of Christ, to be dominated by a desire to love even at great expense to ourselves. And so I would ask God, if you're like that, if you feel that way, like I do, ask that God would remove every barrier, every impediment, every distraction from our hearts so that we could do the impossible. We could love like Christ Jesus loved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that when we look at a text like this, the challenge seems almost too great. And I am grateful that Scripture does not leave us in the dark, but instead says outright, yes, the challenge is too great. You cannot do this on your own. And so as I think about all the ways that I do not deserve to experience or taste the love of God, my sin, my rebellion, my refusal, Father God, personally to not love you and love other people the way I ought to, when I consider that, and then I juxtapose it to the fact that Jesus Christ came, died on a cross for my sins, in order that God could say very clearly so that I would not miss it, I love you. I love you. I love you. That the reality of that, that love would so penetrate my heart and my friends' hearts here today that we would love with the very love that God has shown us. Unconstrained, not worried about schedule, not worried about time, not worried about I got to do things, I got things for me I got to do. It's a me day today. 
No, we would say, this isn't a me day. This is for me to express the love of God. These people in our lives do not taste the love of God if the very people that God has put in their lives are unwilling to love them. May that be a massive conviction for my heart every day and for the hearts of the people who with me want desperately for the love of God to flow freely through our, through our actions and through our words, Father God. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, confident, confident that you can make it happen. Help us love in this way, Father God. In the name of Jesus, amen.